Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And this is going to sound kind of familiar to us, all right, based on what we, we saw in the Gospels. Think back to Luke, okay? So chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, so we know that Theophilus is a Gentile who is a friend of Dr. Luke's. And so the first book is the Gospel of Luke, which Luke wrote to his buddy Theophilus to explain all the things that Jesus did and explain the Gospel and say, Theophilus, you can bank on what you believe in because this is the eyewitness account. This is what happened with Jesus and his ministry on the earth. Now he's writing to Theophilus and saying, okay, buddy, now here's the first book. Now here's the second. And I'm going to give you a history of what happened after Jesus was taken up into heaven. So he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're still thinking that Jesus is going to just obliterate the Romans, then take up, their, uh, then take up his kingship here on earth, and boom, from Jerusalem, he's going to reign and life is going to be great, okay? So that's still their, their, their mindset. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then we're going to see that happen in Acts. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here we are. Jesus has ascended to the Father. And he tells the disciples, and it's not just the 12, okay? We know there were 120, okay, that were uh, on the day of Pentecost. They were there in Jerusalem. So... Jesus ascends into heaven, but he says, I want you to stay in Jerusalem, okay, until Pentecost. That's the Feast of First Fruits, okay? That's when the first parts of the harvest were being brought in, okay? And so what God is about to do at that time is the first massive 
salvation of people, over 3,000 people are going to come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior on that day. They are the first fruits of a harvest that's going to come from that point on, going on to this day, all right? And he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, okay, some people have said this should not be called the Acts of the Apostles, but it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit is referred to 57 times in the book of Acts. He is talking to people. He is filling people. He is changing people. He is directing people. He is working in people's lives. He's working through people's lives. So all of this is going on throughout the book of Acts. And this is what's so cool, because you see Jesus, he was ministering in, in Judea, okay? And it was him and the little band of disciples up to, you know, 72 and then the 12 apostles, and they were just kind of very localized. From this point on, it explodes because the Holy Spirit is working through the believers in Christ, and he is working in Jerusalem, he is working in Ethiopia, he is working in Antioch, he is working in Thyatira, he is working in Ephesus. He's working all over the place now through the body of Jesus Christ, the believers of Christ, people like you and me, all right? So consider this. In John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples, it's good that I go away. I'm going to send you the helper and he will be with you and he will be in you, okay? So the ministry of the Holy Spirit has three different locales, if you will, all right? The first is with, para in Greek, okay? Jesus says he'll be with you, and he is with us and working uh, to bring us to the Lord and working in our midst and all that, so he is with us. But Jesus says he will be in you. Now, in John chapter 20, verse 22, after Jesus had risen from the dead and he's with the disciples, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So now there's that indwelling of the Spirit. They're born again, okay? Jesus talked to Nicodemus about this being born of the Spirit, being born again. This is key because people have this idea that, oh, well, I go to church or I believe in Jesus. James is going to deal with this. But this issue of being born again, where the Holy Spirit is indwelling a person and is intimately connected with that individual it's incredible. But then Jesus refers to this when he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That is epi in Greek. 
It's the upon experience, the empowering experience. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see time and time again that believers are being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is important to keep in mind because when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, remember, he said, whoever believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. And we're told that he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. So if something is going to flow out, all right, then it has to be filled in order for it to flow out. So we, we have a reverse osmosis system uh, at, at our house for our water, okay? And it's time to replace the filters. It's not doing so well, so that's what I get to do this week, all right? No biggie, it's simple. But our water tastes terrible from the tap. So what we did was my wife Jennifer dug out an old Brita um, filter system, okay, that we haven't used forever because we had the osmosis. But she pulled that thing out, and we have this, this uh, lemonade jar that's got a little spigot in the front. And so we sit the, we can't find the pitcher, by the way, for the Brita anymore. So we put that on the, the little jar. That's actually about a gallon jar. We put that on top. And in order for us to get water flowing out of it, we have to pour water into it. We have to fill it. And as we fill it, and it percolates through that filter and all, it fills up the jar, and then it is poured out for us to be able to use, okay? And that's the picture that we have here, where Jesus is saying that you are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't just happen once. We see time and time again the believers, as they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and fills them, and boom, they go out and the Spirit flows through them and they're doing the work of the ministry, okay? So we need to keep in mind, a lot of people say, well, you get the Holy Spirit when you're saved. Yes, you do. You get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there is a subsequent empowering by the Spirit where we are filled, where we are empowered so that we can do that which that the Holy Spirit has given us to do the gifts of the spirit we're not doing it on our own strength it's him working through us okay and we're going to see that throughout the book of acts so we go over to chapter 2 familiar passage chapter 2 verse 1 when the day of pentecost arrived they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we know what goes on after that. So they're speaking in a tongue, an unknown language to them, but everybody else is hearing the glory of God being proclaimed in their own language, all right? And they're like, whoa, what's going on here? And Peter, who is notorious for putting his foot in his mouth, is 
filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches a whopper of an evangelistic message and over 3,000 people come to Christ that day. It's Pentecost, the first fruits of the harvest. And that's what we have. And so all these people get saved. And I want us to go over now to the same chapter, verse 2. But I want you to look at, in verse 42, what body life looked like. We've got all these believers now. All these people are born again. And look at how church life was. Okay, this is very, very simple. All right. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's number one, the word of God. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Four things. That's what they were devoted to. The word of God, fellowship, getting together. Okay, Pastor Dan mentioned this morning about how people are that free agent kind of mindset and say, well, I don't need to go to church. Yes, we do. Just as much as my thumb needs to be connected to my hand. All right. If it's not, it's going to die. And my hand suffers and the thumb suffers. We have to be connected. It's body life. All right. There's no Lone Rangers. That's not the way it works. So we're all together, and part of that is the breaking of bread, which is eating together. It's always funny to me that Jesus is eating with people a lot. You know, you find them sitting at tables eating with people. It doesn't matter who they are. So it's that fellowship and that intimacy, but it's also the communion, okay, the breaking of, of the bread and the drinking of the cup, remembering what Jesus did, and prayer, prayer. As we go through the book of Acts, we'll see time and time again, they were worshiping and praying. They came together and prayed. Prayer is an integral part of body life. Praying together. It's not something that we see very much today. You can go into churches and you will have a prayer, maybe before worship, before the teaching, prayer at the end, and that's all you see. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. Prayer permeates the church. It ought to be where we come together, you would see people all around praying for each other. How you doing today? Oh man, I'm, I'm having a rough time. I'm just, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm stressed out, whatever. Let's pray about it. And you see a couple of people over in a corner just praying together. After the end of a service, somebody goes up to an elder or the pastor or a brother or sister in Christ. Hey, can you pray for me? I'm going through this. Sure. And prayer should, should just be a part of body life. But it's interesting how... It's so absent. I get amazed where you have, you know, we have our designated prayer meetings. Not many people show up for those. Throw a barbecue, a potluck, you can pack a room. 
hey, let's get together and commune with our Heavenly Father in prayer and build each other up in prayer. And it's just a handful. Prayer is pivotal. It's key. That's a part of life that we'll see here in the book of Acts. It's amazing to me how we can have meetings and there'll be a prayer at the beginning, a prayer at the end, and a lot of discussion and talk in the middle. That's not how it's done, biblically, okay? And I've been in church a long time in a lot of different churches. And when we come together, we should be praying. If we're having a meeting where we need to make decisions on things, prayer should be foremost and utmost. Because when we're connected to him, then we're getting the information that he wants us to have to make those decisions and choices. This is how the body lived. And it was beautiful and it was powerful. It goes on and says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout the, through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were taking care of each other. And day by day, attending to the temple and the breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were gathering. They were in the word. They were loving on each other. They were praying together. And people were getting saved, coming to Christ, and being discipled. It just grew on its own. It wasn't, hey, let's do a demographic uh, chart and see what kind of people we need to uh, market the gospel to. They just did body life and people got saved. Very simple. Very easy. Now, even though this is simple and easy, things can get sidetracked. If we go to chapter 6, verse 1, all this beauty is marred by some division, okay? So chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists. Uh-oh, dark clouds rolling in, okay? arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, okay, and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, now listen to the requirements here, of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there's this beautiful thing happening. And then 
you have the Hellenist Jews and the Jew Jews, okay? The Hellenists were ones who did not live and were not from Israel. Because of previous dispersions, they were from the area of the Gentiles. They spoke Greek. And the Jews did not see the Hellenists as being real Jews. So when it came time to take care of the widows and to get food to them and provisions, the Jews weren't taking care, the Jewish Christians weren't taking care of the Hellenist Christians. They're both Jewish. This group spoke Hebrew. This spoke, group spoke Greek. And this group thought they were better than this group. Oh, man. Okay, so the, the apostles say, this is what we're going to do. You guys pick, and then we'll pray over them, lay our hands on them, and they'll do the work of the ministry. All seven of these guys are Hellenists. Okay, it was Jew and Hellenists that together all said, we want these seven guys. Not because they were Hellenists, not because they were uh, regular Jews, but because the qualifications that they saw in these men, oh, that's easy, Stephen, he's got to be one of them. Oh yeah, Philip, yeah, he's, oh man, yeah. So based upon their walk with the Lord, these guys were chosen and then off it goes again. The people are getting blessed. People are getting saved. The word of God is moving in people's lives. And the Holy Spirit is saving people. Revival is happening. Now, chapter 8, verse 14. They had been in Jerusalem. Okay? Locked in. Now, you remember how Jesus said, you'll be my... Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? They weren't in the uttermost parts of the earth. They weren't in Samaria. They were in Judea and Jerusalem because that was their safe space. But when persecution heated up and Saul went on the hunt and Stephen was martyred and James, the, son of, the brother of John, was martyred, guess what? Everybody started to scatter all over the place. So Philip, not the apostle, but the waiter, okay, the guy who was just chosen, Philip ends up, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, in Samaria. And he is preaching the gospel, and these Samaritans are getting saved. The Jews, you remember, hated the Samaritans. That's why the Samaritan woman was so surprised that Jesus would talk to her at all. But Jesus ministered to that Samaritan community and that woman, and they, they believed in him as the Messiah and as the Savior. But still, the Jewish people had this stigma against the, the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans are getting saved. Even though Jesus said, go into Samaria and preach the gospel, they hadn't. Philip is, they're getting born again. So the elders in Jerusalem go, what's going on here? Chapter um, 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. 
who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about salvation, okay? This is why. For he had not yet fallen, coming upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Most scholars think that the reason why the Lord worked this way is for the same reason why the Lord used Cornelius and his family. Because they were Gentiles. And Gentiles shouldn't have any relationship with the Lord. Okay? They were Gentiles. And this is going to be a problem in a little bit. We'll see it in Galatians. So, for the Jewish mindset, salvation came to the Jews. But Samaritans were getting saved. So, Peter who was a pillar in the church and was respected, he goes, he prays for them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Oh, wow. Okay. The Lord is moving in the Samaritans' lives as well. This is bigger than we thought. And what goes on to happen is, Peter brings back the message we'll see in a little bit. And he's saying, hey, look, this is what's happening. God is moving in the Samaritans' lives as well. So if we go over to chapter 9, verse 31. Look at what it says that's happening here. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Now at this point, Paul is become a Christian okay and so there's rest but look at what it says so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied so the church was just doing very basic things they were walking in the fear of the Lord they respected God. They respected the word. They respected Jesus. They had a reverence for him. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The word for comfort is periclesis. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter or the helper. So what they were doing was they were living out life in reverence and respect and awe to God and in the help and assistance of the Holy Spirit. And because of that relationship, the gospel was growing like wildfire. The church was multiplying. Not because of demographics, not because of plans and programs, and I'm not saying you know, there's anything wrong with plans and programs, but we live in a time and in a country where we put more stock in business mindsets to get the gospel out rather than biblical mindsets in getting the gospel out. Just follow the Lord, let him move, and things will happen. It's not complicated. And we see the gospel growing and growing. Now in chapter 10... It's growing into the sphere of the Gentiles. We're familiar with this passage. 
While Peter, this is verse 44, chapter 10, while Peter was still saying these things, so now he's speaking to Cornelius's family, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So you probably remember the account of what happened. Here's Peter. He's in Joppa. He's at the house of Simon the Tanner. Okay. And he's hungry. And he's up on the rooftop and he goes into a trance. And while he's in this trance, a sheet comes down and it's got all sorts of animals and insects and reptiles and critters and stuff. And Peter tells us when he's talking to the Jerusalem council that the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, rise and eat. And Peter said, no way. I'm a Jew. I don't touch unclean stuff. I'm not going there. I'm not going to eat that stuff. And it goes back up into heaven, and then it comes down again. And Peter's like, no way, I'm not doing this. Goes back into heaven, comes down again. Rise and eat, Peter. Kill and eat. No, I'm not going to do it. And the Holy Spirit says, listen, what I call clean, don't call unclean. And so then there's a knock at the door and these Gentile servants come and go, hey, um, we need this guy named, I think his name is Peter. At least that's what this angel told uh, our commander Cornelius. And um, is he here? Yeah, Peter's here. And the Lord tells him, I want you to go with these guys. And Peter, when he gets to Cornelius's house, he says, guys, you know, I'm a Jew and I'm not supposed to be with you guys. But the Lord's got something he wants to do. And you know what happens? He begins to teach them the word of God and the gospel. He doesn't even give an altar call. They believe, wham, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And everybody there is going, what? What is going on here? Well, remember how Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world? You remember how Isaiah talked about Jesus would be the Savior to the Gentiles? Oh, he really meant it. Yeah, he did. So they're watching the Lord move in power, taking the message of the gospel way beyond the borders of Israel. And then he calls Barnabas. Barnabas goes up to Antioch. That's uh, Gentile territory, okay? And people are getting saved in Antioch. And now I lost my place. Where'd I go? Okay, chapter 13, verse 31. Okay? Or actually, I take that back. 13.1, okay? So here they are in Antioch. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, so this guy was a buddy of Herod who was like 
really bad, who just murdered James, the brother of John, okay? Bad guy. But he's following the Lord and Saul. So as Barnabas was ministering in Antioch, he's like, boy, I need help. So he goes and he gets Saul, who's been uh, in, in Tarsus, just kind of hanging, and the Lord's been working on him and getting him ready for ministry. And so they're there. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And the first missionary journey began. Barnabas and Saul head out into the Greek world, into the Roman Empire, proclaiming Jesus Christ. And people are getting saved. Now, also during this time, the Jewish believers are having a really rough time. So if you were a Jew, the Gentiles hated you. I'm not talking about Gentile Christians. I'm talking about Gentiles. And the Jews hated the Gentiles. But if you were a Jewish believer, you were hated by the Gentiles and you were hated by your fellow Jews because you believed in Jesus. They were persecuted. They were under a lot of temptation. Sin had gotten in. We saw a little bit of that with the whole Hellenist widows and the Jewish widows and divisions and power plays and all sorts of garbage. And so at this time, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, writes a letter to the Jewish believers that are scattered all over the place, all right, to encourage them and to help them out. So at this point, let's go over to James and we'll go to James chapter 1, okay? So he is writing to Jewish believers that are all over the place. And so keep this in mind when, when we read this, and I, I really, you know, I've, I've read James, but I didn't fully understand the context of what was going on and what they were facing. And so when he says these things, to the believers, it's like, oh, okay, it makes sense. It's not, it, I see where they're at. I see what they're going through. This is radical stuff. Their lives are being turned upside down because they're Jews that are in Gentile territory. They're Jews that are believers, so they're hated by their own families. Like, if you were a Jew and you came to Jesus Christ, you were considered dead by your family. You lost your inheritance, any claim in the family business, any contact, it was over. Now, I saw this a little bit in, actually I didn't see it, but I saw the repercussions of it because my great-grandparents were Orthodox Jews, hardcore Orthodox. And my grandfather married a Gentile and when he did, they took my grandfather's pictures and turned them facing the wall and said, you're dead to us and cut off all ties. I did not know my great-grandparents. 
I didn't know anything about them until after my granddad had died and my mother had dug up stuff and everything. Because the fact that he married a Gentile, they wrote him off completely. All ties were gone. And that's what happens to a Jew who trusts their life to Christ. It's over. You're kicked out of the synagogue. You're kicked out of fellowship. You're out completely. That's why when we see things in like, uh, remember when Jesus healed the guy who was born blind and he's standing before the, the council and they call in his parents and say, hey, is this your son? And he was born blind. Yeah, yeah, that's our son. Well, how do you receive his sight? And it says that they were afraid because of the Jews, the Jewish leaders. If they sided with their son and they sided with Jesus, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. They would be kicked out of the temple. They would be kicked out of Jewish society and they would be outcasts. And they were scared. So they said, he's of age, you ask our son. And they kicked him out. But fortunately, Jesus goes and finds him and says, all right, I'm the Savior, follow me. But it's a hard life that they were facing. And so he goes through and he's telling them, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And we know how this stuff goes on. But what he's driving home in the book of James is to live the Christian life. They were in a place where they were tempted to walk away from the Lord. There was hypocrisy. There was compromise. And James is saying, don't go there. Don't do that. A lot of people get hung up on James because they think he's preaching salvation by works. He's not talking about salvation. Okay, he's not saying you have to work to be saved. He's talking to saved people and saying, look, since you're saved, live like it. If you are calling yourself a Christian, live like a Christian. And so going down to verse 19... He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That means that they were in sin. All right. And there's other sins that that James calls out within this book. So we're talking about conduct in the life of a believer. Okay, and he says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about that sanctification, that being saved that the Bible talks about. Okay, it's able to sanctify you. The word has been put into your life. You need to let it have its work. And the word meekness means strength under control. It was a word used for like a war horse. A lot of power, a lot of strength, but it yielded to its master. And so James is saying you need to yield to the word of God so that it will sanctify you and help you grow. 
And so he follows this up with, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once forgotten what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, he's not talking about the law of Moses, the law of liberty, gospel, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. Okay? If you go over to verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Again, he's not talking about works of the law. He's not talking about working to get saved, all right? He's talking about walking the walk. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they need for the body, what good is that? It's just talk. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from the works uh, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Going down to verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There are a lot of people who say, I believe in Jesus. That's fantastic. So do demons. Okay? Just because somebody believes in Jesus as a person, they have an academic or intellectual, yes, I believe in him, does not save us, okay? When it's referring to Abraham, and Paul will talk about this in Galatians, when the Bible says that it was by faith that Abraham was justified, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The belief was manifested in action, okay? If I, were to, if I were to tell my wife that I love her, but I never show any evidence of that, what does my saying I love you mean? What good is it? Oh, I love you, honey, but I don't spend any time with you. Oh, I love you, honey, but I'm off doing my own thing and I really don't care about what's going on in your life. It's just words. And to say that a per we believe in Jesus, that we're a Christian, but there's no life to back it up, we need to rethink things. We live in a time, I, and I learned this term when I was down uh, on vacation in Tennessee, cultural Christianity. Oh, I've been going to this church all my life. 
oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Yeah, well, yeah, I've been a member of this church since I was, you know, 18 or whatever it is. Oh yeah, I grew up in the Bible Belt. Just because we believe something, if we have not engaged in that belief by actually living according to that belief, it doesn't mean anything. And that's what James is talking about. And that's a real problem with the church today. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about repentance. We don't talk about salvation. We don't talk about hell. Jesus loves you. He does. He wants a great, great plan for your life or has a great plan for your life. He does. Your life is going to be great if you come to Jesus. It will. But we don't talk about the things that Jesus talked about as reasons to come to Christ. See, lives changed. When people were getting saved in the book of Acts, lives were changing. People were repenting from their sins. They were living a new life. The scriptures tell us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. If we say I'm a believer, but I'm not living like Jesus, I got a problem. At best, I'm a hypocrite. At worst, I'm not saved. It makes me think of Alexander the Great. There was a guy who was a deserter. He was afraid of war. And he was caught and brought before Alexander. And Alexander said to him, what's your name? And the soldier said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great said to him, listen, either change the way you act or change your name. And he left it at that and gave him the opportunity to get things straight. If we call ourselves Christians in Antioch, that's where the term was first used, Christ-like ones. If we call ourselves a Christian, we need to act like a Christian because that's what a disciple is. We discipline our lives to follow our Savior. This is what James is talking about. I know it's tough out there, guys, but you're falling into sin. You're walking away from the Lord. You're saying you're a believer, but you're not living like it. You need to walk the talk. And that's what we have here. Now, going back into the book of Acts, if we go to verse chapter 15, what's going on there, James is dealing with this on this front, but something else is happening. And there are Judaizers who have come in. Now all these, uh, all these believers, Gentile believers, are following the Lord and serving the Lord. And the Judaizers are people who, they're Jews, and because Christ came to the Jew first and he was a Jew and the promised Messiah of the Jews, they believed that you had to be a Jew first in order to be saved. So they were adding things to the gospel. 
If you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the Mosaic law. James was not talking about the Mosaic law. Paul will in Galatians, okay? So these people are coming in. They meant well, but they were just going off of what they knew. And this is one of the biggest reasons for division within the church and denominationalism. People don't know the word of God. They have their biases. They have their preferences. And they superimpose that upon the word of God and then try to get everybody else to fit that. And it doesn't go well. And it wasn't going well here. This is why God had Peter be the one to be the instrument through whom the Holy Spirit came to the Samaritans. It's why he used Peter to bring the gospel to Cornelius and the Gentiles. They weren't circumcised. They weren't Jews. But the Holy Spirit was filling them and empowering them. They were born again. They were prophesying. The gifts of the Spirit were working in their lives and through their lives. And that is what is brought before them in this council. So, chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But wait, all these folks were already saved. And it was evident. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. And so the discussion goes on. Verse 8, it says, And God who knows the heart bore witness. Okay, and this is Peter speaking now, okay? Peter's talking, he stands up, and he's talking about the things that the Holy Spirit did through him. He bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Going down, verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has relayed how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, and he goes back to the word of God for the answers. Okay? So in verse 21, it says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this is the only rules that were given. Okay? Verse 24. 
Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you, this is the letter that they're writing to the Gentiles. Troubled you with these words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instruction. We didn't do this. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them with you, with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will be, you will do well. Farewell. So basically the only rule was this. Don't do these things. The eating of the blood, things sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality. Because there are Jews all over the place in the cities in which you live and Jewish brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. And for them, this is a stumbling block. So out of love and concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ and for the Jews that live in those cities, don't do things that are going to make them stumble. Okay. And as far as the sexual immorality, that's bad as it is. So the cool thing is when this is read to them in verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So, you know, these divisions come up because of ignorance about the word of God, because of biases and things. But going back to the word, spending time in prayer, and getting direction from the Holy Spirit, everybody came out a winner until there were some Judaizers who just said, no, this is the way it's going to be. And they started their first denomination, okay? And it caused a lot of problems. There was a lot of division. So we'll finish here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. The church in Galatia was vibrant. It was thriving. It was doing so well. But because of this idea that you had to follow the law of Moses as well to be saved, it was really causing a mess in the church in Galatia. And so Paul writes, I am astonished, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These are the people that were just being addressed in the Jerusalem council. This is what's going on. It's like, hey, we've got a problem here. Going to verse 15, Paul lays this out. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's talking about justification by works, addressing these Judaizers, okay, adding to the gospel. James was talking about living a life that reflects that you are saved, okay, walking the walk. 
So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, I am crucified, I am dead. The life I live, the way I conduct myself is in direct relationship to my faith in Christ. I don't live the way I used to. I live the way that Christ would have me. Same thing that James taught, okay? I'll finish with this. Verse 11, or verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He wraps up this gospel talking about walking the walk. Chapter 5, he says, these are the works of the flesh. This is the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a believer, okay, don't, he, he says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, what you started in the Spirit, you're trying to accomplish and finish in the flesh. It doesn't work. If you're a believer, these are the works of the flesh. Don't do them. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit bear fruit through you. So he and James are on the same page. And it's this fruit being born by believers who are walking the walk and the Holy Spirit is moving through their lives that the gospel is growing. And I would encourage us, all we need to do is simply rely on the Lord. If you're a believer, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And remember when we were in the book of Luke and Jesus was teaching about prayer and he said, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He said, if you being evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your son or your children how much more will your heavenly father give the holy spirit to them that ask the church prayed for the spirit's work in their lives and working through their lives and we too i can't live the life of christ in my own power i was never intended to i'm to yield to the word of god and let the Holy Spirit of God work in me to conform me into the image of Christ. And if we'll do that, and we are lights in the world around us, and we live a body life where we're looking out for each other, the world's going to see that. Unfortunately, the world looks at the church and goes, I don't, you know, look at the bickering, 
Look at the hypocrisy, look at the garbage, look at the way, you know, take your pick. And they don't want to have anything to do with the church or Jesus because we're a reflection of our Savior. If that's what Jesus is like, I don't want it. But if we yield to the Lord and let him have his way with us and we pour into each other, the world is going to look at that and go, I want what they have. They're lost. They're hurting. They're empty. The world promises joy and happiness and they get left with emptiness and loss and regret. We are the ambassadors of Christ in this world. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Lord, make me everything you want me to be. It's going to be a lifelong process, okay? The Bible says he takes us from glory to glory. But let him do his work, like we see here. And watch what happens. May we be light in a dark world. And I would encourage you, take a step. You know, even today here at church, if you see somebody that's looking a little down or whatever, go up to them and say, hey, you doing okay? Can I pray with you? Do you want to talk? And be that source of encouragement and uplifting to your brother or sister. It'll bless them. And it'll bless others as they see us ministering to each other. The church is powerful because of our Savior. He's put his spirit within us. Let's open ourselves up to let him fill us that he might flow through us. Thank you.